Psalm 36, verses 5 through 10. Your steadfast love extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains, your judgments are like the great deep. You save humans and animals alike, O love. How precious is your steadfast love. All people may take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your salvation to the upright of heart. This reading is an excerpt from Healing Justice and the Potential for Community-Based Science by Aurora Levins Morales. Epigenetics is what scientists call the discovery that events in our environments can change the outer skin of our genes, change the way in which they express themselves, turning them off and on, depending on how our bodies read the conditions of life and that those changes get passed on to our descendants. Dutch women who survived the famine of 1944 gave birth to low-weight babies, as expected. But when their children grew up, they also had low-weight babies. The story of hunger clung to their DNA and passed on the traits appropriate to a permanent famine. Combat veterans pass on the changes in their own bodies that come with the constant threat of sudden and violent death, and the DNA of their children, born after the trauma, wears a coat of camouflage expressed in the symptoms of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. But if hunger and terror tattoo the skins of our genes with outdated survival manuals, and continuous stream of SOS signals, if the conscious acts of human beings to deprive each other of food and safety and life itself mark us in inheritable ways, surely we can decide to mark ourselves through an entirely different set of human acts with messages of solace and solidarity and a codex of healing. We all know how important breathing is. And I just recently learned that it's actually on the exhale that we activate our parasympathetic system, that place where we can rest and digest. And so we all just sigh with me and exhale really loudly. Let's, <sighs> thank you. Last December, I was overwhelmed with work and running late, as I usually am, and trying to figure out how to meet my children's needs and my need to get some work done. My husband, who is very wise and also very busy, reminded me that there is a movie theater near our house that has two wonderful qualities. The first is that the popcorn has real butter on it, which is delicious. 
And also for my children, two of them have soy allergies. So this means they can have movie theater popcorn when they see a movie. Very exciting. And the second thing is that this movie theater has in the lobby, off to the side, some tables and chairs. So my wise spouse said to me, take them to the movies, they can watch the new Spider-Man movie, and you can do some work. I thought, that's brilliant, right? Brilliant. So we rushed across the bridge and dropped off my eldest daughter at the therapeutic riding center where she volunteers and took my other three children with me to the movies. And the previews had already started, so I bought the tickets and I told my children, just hurry, hurry, go in, I will get your snacks for you. Had them yell out the door what they wanted. Go find your seats, I'll bring them to you. You don't have to miss anything. They were happy, they went in to get their seats, and I went back to the concession stand to start ordering. Now this is before the government shutdown, so going to the movies wasn't quite an extravagance. And after I had ordered the popcorn and the nachos for my son who takes after my own heart, and lemonades and candies, because I was going to have happy children occupied inside the movie theater for an hour and 56 minutes of productive work time. I, this sounds like a familiar challenge for all of us. Now, it was too much for me to carry, and the concession stand employee, she told me she would help me. She said, I'll follow you. So we opened the door and walked in, and it was so dark. It was 1 o'clock outside, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, bright, sunny day in the movie theater, pitch dark, and I could not see anything. So <laughs> I'm looking around for human forms. Now, my 13-year-old daughter is taller than me. So when I saw a form, a human adult form, I figured my daughter is adult size. That must be her. The theater's quite empty. So I walked to the row where I thought that my family was sitting, and I crept in closer and closer. And I was kneel, you know, bending down because I didn't want to inter I didn't know how many people were in this theater. I couldn't see a thing. And I didn't want to disturb the movie for anybody else. So closer and closer, and no recognition or indication or anything different is happening. I leaned in very, very close to the face of the person who I thought was my daughter. Have any of you done this before? And I said, here are your snacks, sweetie. And suddenly I hear a hiss, mommy, from a few rows back. And the man in front of my face bursts into laughter. And I scurried out of the row. The room was becoming a little more visible. I went with complete embarrassment to the row where my children actually were sitting, looking at me with horrified faces, passed out their candy as fast as I could and ran out of the theater. Now nearly everyone I tell this story to wonder, why didn't this man say something about a strange woman in a purple coat moving towards him with armloads of snacks? I was backlit. But we may never know. I have no idea who that poor man is. This month we're talking about grace and salvation and we're exploring what these topics mean to us as Unitarian Universalists. And they may be quite different than what some of us may have learned in our faiths of origin or out in the secular world. 
And last fall, when this embarrassing incident happened, I was taking a class called Healthy Boundaries 101, <laughs> moving towards my ministerial competencies. <laughs> I'm a candidate for Unitarian Universalist ministry. They don't know what they have coming at them. So I was thinking about this, and I thought, how interesting that sometimes, no matter how careful or conscientious we are, sometimes we bumble over the boundaries of other people carrying snacks. <laughs> now, I certainly do not make it a habit to lean into the personal space of strangers, call them pet names, or give away expensive movie theater snacks. I was thinking of this story this week, this embarrassing experience of my own, in the context of learning to manage and be conscientious about boundaries, something that many of us may not have learned growing up, learning how to respect where you end and where I begin, what belongs to you and what belongs to me, where the roles and edges and dimensions of our different relationships begin and end. Boundaries have a lot to do with grace, with the grace that we hope for from others, with the grace that we extend to others, and the grace of the holy that flows through each of us, with every beat of our hearts, with every inhale, every exhale of breath. We are connected, we are separate. And we're learning, learning together where that delicate line is, and it can be a lifelong process. And meanwhile, Mary Oliver tells us the world goes on. Whoever you are, whoever is posting embarrassing stories about you on Facebook, <laughs> the world continues no matter how lonely we feel, the world offers itself to our imagination. Tell me about despair, yours, Mary Oliver says, and I will tell you about mine. And there is so much despair in this world, and we need so much grace. As Unitarian Universalists, we have ulterior motives. We want grace and salvation for everyone. We believe that we are bound together we are saved together, and that grace flows through our connections to one another. And we're understanding more every day about epigenetics, about cultural trauma, intergenerational trauma that is carried down from our ancestors through us to our descendants in this broken world. And we come together as religious people, as Unitarian Universalists, to embody a different set of human acts with messages of solace and solidarity to encode on our DNA and all of those who are within our arm's reach to encode a codex of healing, of grace. Shared silence, shared poetry, shared singing, these practices encode something different on us. We need practice, and we need discipline. Most of all, we need togetherness. 
Last summer, I did a 400-hour unit of cl clinical pastoral education. I can't even say the word anymore. That's chaplaincy. And this is also required for ministerial foundation, part of my formation and our tradition. And I was lucky to be able to divide my time. I spent half my time working in the emergency department and the intensive care unit in a hospital, and the other half of my time at the homeless hospitality center where I live in New London. And the suffering was unbearable. And the healing was miraculous. And at the end of the 400 hours, I was exhausted. I went up to a retreat center in Massachusetts called Adeline Rood. I wonder if any of you have heard of it. It's a retreat center and gathering place for the Episcopalian Society of the Companions of the Holy Cross. This society is a diverse group of more than 800 women, both lay and ordained, both single and partnered, and they meet there together. I received a scholarship to attend a retreat with one of my theological heroes, Reverend Becca Stevens, to rest after finishing my Master of Divinity and finishing this very difficult 400-hour, 10-week unit of chaplaincy. Now, every night there is a compline service, and after the service and until breakfast, the sisters observe silence. So faith and religion and breath are the connections that I noticed and experienced at the Adeline Rood Center, Adeline Rood. Spire means breath. Reverend Nathan has taught all of us this. And faith and religion are inspirational and aspirational. We come to worship and to lifespan faith formation to be inspired to aspire to our highest values. We breathe them together. And the silence and music and poetry and prose, they flow in and over us. We breathe them in together so they can move us into action, into resilience, and into love for yet another week. At the Compline Prayers I attended, the women read the Psalms in antiphony, in call and response. One side of the room recited a verse and the other side of the room answered, and it was a visceral experience. I heard the Psalms in a new way. It was a balm to my frayed nerves, my raw heart and my tired body. The sound of collective voices in antiphony, it was a codex of healing on my brain on the physical structure of my brain. We may not know how or when justice will ever roll down like waters, or when all of our hearts will see the dignity in every living soul. When will the promises of justice and freedom be met? But we need to hear that it will. Over and over again, we need to speak the words together and we breathe them into existence. Our bold proclamation that each person inherently matters, that any work towards peace, liberty, and justice must address racial injustice, poverty, and war, that we must actively work for the most vulnerable among us, for justice, 
to root out anti-blackness that drives injustice in our country. Because when the most marginalized of our society is free, then we will all truly be free. We come to worship this shared experience to be affirmed in what we already know. We already know. Salvation comes to every heart. We know that steadfast love is an action. But righteousness is like the mighty mountains, and love extends to the heavens. We believe that if there is such a thing as the kingdom of heaven, as the kingdom of the holy, that it is our job, our duty, to bring it here on earth, to embody those qualities of love and justice. And sometimes we need reminders, and we need the practice of grace. Molly Howes and I are teaching an adult faith formation class, a workshop series, and we had our first session last Wednesday. It's called Fighting Well, and you all want to be there on Wednesday in the Fawes room at 7 o'clock because it's going to be about fighting at church. Okay? <laughs> this workshop series, Fighting Well, How to Make Conflict Transformational, during our first session, we introduced ourselves. We went around the table. We're doing the introductions, and I told the gathered group, I'm co-facilitating this because sometimes we're called to teach what we need to learn. I'm someone who suffers no fools. I'm a little, slightly, sometimes reactive, sometimes. And that means I'm always in a lot of conflict with a lot of different people. But the premise behind our class, this conflict transformation class, is not about avoiding conflict. It's not about trying not to bump into each other in this tender world. But the goal is that understanding conflict is a part of our lives. How do we make conflict transformational? So we're called to teach what we need to learn, but what I found over the past few weeks is that sometimes we're called to learn what we need to preach. And that's what happened to me last month. I was called to preach about love and community, and I was called to live what I need to learn about my own theology, that is our relational covenantal theology as Unitarian Universalists, that love, the love that is holding all of us, holding all that we love, this love of action that moves us to give with incredible generosity, to see harm in the world, to see a need and rush to fill it. My husband is in the Coast Guard, and he worked without pay for a month. And there was no option to not do that. I had gas cards stuffed into my mailbox, grocery gift cards stuffed into my mailbox, gluten-free cookies baked for my children. And this morning, I walked in to find bags of fresh fruit, juice, and toilet paper, because I'll tell you, as much, generous, as much generosity as in this congregation, you're also very practical. <laughs> but grace. Grace doesn't always seem so practical, does it? 
We say it is undeserved and unearned, but perhaps, perhaps that is incorrect. Maybe the truth is that we have each already earned grace, that each human being is already and always deserving of grace and mercy and generosity to rain down on our lives. Friends, I didn't know I needed a lesson in grace, a practicum in salvation. I didn't know where the boundary of grace was around my life. It can be hard to ask for and to receive help. Grace took me by surprise this month, and I hope it will also take you by surprise. I found it intensely awkward and uncomfortable. <laughs> but during this time, my were lifted up and held in love and generosity from this church, from my home church, from colleagues and neighbors. I felt uncomfortable being so vulnerable and in need. And I have to tell you, I was also uneasy with the language I heard in the media and in my communities about how unfair it was for my family to be struggling to meet our basic needs while both adults worked. Were we more deserving of grace than others? Why? Because we're able to work? Because we're good and kind? What about people who live with disability or for whom for any number of reasons, cannot draw on a paycheck. We know the system doesn't care if you're kind or unkind. It only asks us to go along with the status quo without asking any questions. We have lived through decades of an active war on the poor of this country. And misguided ideologies drive injustice. Did you know that 40% of homeless youth are LGBTQ? Our faith, our Unitarian Universalist faith, compels us to listen for prophecy through the lived experiences of the oppressed. Our faith convicts us to be proximate to suffering, to help and to protect the most vulnerable among us, to act with works of love to embody grace, because we believe that every human has inherent worth and dignity. We insist that water, food, shelter, and health care are basic human rights. Every person in this world is deserving of grace, because grace is that place of possibility. Each of you, you are worthy of support and care no matter what you are going through. When you feel afraid and in need of grace, breathe in and put your hand over your heart. Ask, what does this fear need to keep my heart and mind open? When we look within, we have to avoid amplifying our own security, right, at the expense of other people. We can feel our fears and not be owned by them. Asking for help, letting people help, not letting fear run our lives. The state of our nation and our morality, our collective soul, 
depends on how we deal with that fear. It depends on our noticing when others are in need of grace. That feeling of not fair, of the seemingly arbitrary direction of grace sometimes, the way that assistance doesn't seem to always go where it's needed. When we have that question in our minds, why not there? That is the spirit of life and love and justice coursing through our veins and telling us to take action, to be grace. We can't wait for answers or full clarity before we run towards trouble to help others, to offer what we have. Sometimes I don't feel as loving and open and brave as I want to be. But because of all of you, I stand up. I stand up with love and openness anyway and say, maybe things can be different. Grace is being loved at our most unloved. Salvation is being healed at our place of greatest resistance, allowing others to love and care and help us. We find that grace is ever present, ever abundant flowing within and through and among all of us. May we see grace. May we be held in grace. May we feel the power of grace. And may we each be grace and salvation, enacting an entirely different set of human acts, embodying messages of solace and solidarity with a codex of healing for the world. Let us say together, amen.